my mission was always to tell the stories that weren't told, the stories that we felt needed to be told. It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rule book, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. It's time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. I'm Brian Rowley, and this is The Big Rethink. There are many ways to tell a story, and as a marketer, I believe we are all storytellers in one way or another. On this episode of The Big Rethink, we speak with Akila McConnell about how she tells hers. Founder of Unexpected Virtual Tours, Akila understands how to keep listeners interested and excited to learn about history and the art of storytelling. Welcome to the show, Akila. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. So excited to be here with you. Yeah, I'm excited for our conversation. So um, as I explained, you're the founder and owner of Unexpected Virtual Tours. Tell us a little bit about the organization and exactly what it does. Yeah, so Unexpected Virtual Tours, we create uh, radically creative events for remote teams. And uh, I could tell you a little bit about how we began, because obviously you don't go to college thinking that you're going to build a virtual team building company, or at least I sure did it. <laughs> so um, we actually began uh, seven years ago is a walking tour company. And when I began as a walking tour company, uh, our name was Unexpected Atlanta because I'm based here in Atlanta. And my mission was always to tell the stories that weren't told, the stories that we felt needed to be told. And uh, of course, being in Atlanta, one of those stories was very much about the civil rights movement, but not just the story of Dr. King, which is the story we frequently hear about, but about how the civil rights movement was impacted by food, about the women that played a role, about all of these different um, stories that we don't normally hear about. The pandemic happened in 2020, and of course, within a day, our entire revenue all you know had gone to zero uh, because you can't really do walking tours when it's a pandemic. Uh, we, I had you know 15 employees at the time. Um, and I, we all got into a Zoom call and we said, well, what are we going to do now? Um, and the obvious choice was for us to convert what we were doing in the physical stage, uh, telling these unexpected stories that matter and transforming it into uh, virtual experiences. And we've now been doing that for three years. And believe it or not, uh, the virtual business is actually the largest part of our business uh, and it continues to grow every single year. What surprises you like in, in this process? I mean, as you said, you know, you sort of took what was expected, sort of created an unexpected twist to it. But from your experience, like w what in this process has really surprised you the most? I think the thing that has surprised me the most is the way the demand has changed for our experiences. Um, seven years ago, I began Unexpected Atlanta. And when I began it, at that time, we told people, well, we're going to be creating food tours that talked about the civil rights movement. And people would say to me, why? Why do people want to do this? Why, you know, what is the interest? 
Um, this is before the Black Lives Matter movement, before really there was this growing recognition. At that time, uh, seven years ago, I mean, DEI programs were largely in its infancy. It was just a very different environment. And so we have now been doing diversity and equity and inclusion events for longer than most companies have had DEI programs. Um, and we've really grown along the way in which we're realizing that not only are we educating people and companies about our content, but we're also educating companies on how can you be successful in doing great DEI work, in bringing great DEI experiences to your uh, employees that will make them feel empowered, that will make them feel invested and included within your company. You know, the one thing that I love about your company and doing the research that we're doing is there is a very heavy influence around DEI, obviously, in terms of what, it, it, what, what you're doing. But the reality of that is, is you didn't make that the focal point of who you are. You, you created these experiences and sort of wove the DEI conversation in it just as it naturally happens, as most of us should. You know, there's so many businesses today that, you know, are trying to check the box around the DEI and the importance behind it. And we all know how important it actually is. But I love that it's just natural um, in the way that you approach it. It is just, it's about educating, it's about learning, it's about all of those things, but not specifically targeted in one area. It just becomes an inclusive part of who you are and what you do. Um, I guess my question to you on that was, was that thoughtful in, in the way that you organize the company? Or is that just, you know, the way that you and all of the members of your team sort of live every day and that just became natural? It, it was very thoughtful in terms of our mission. Um, our mission, like I said, is to tell unexpected stories that matter. Um, if you heard me just say that, I didn't say our mission was to tell diverse stories. I didn't say our mission was to create inclusive experiences. Um, when we started thinking about what are unexpected stories that matter, there are many unexpected stories of white heterosexual men that matter, that aren't being told. There are also many stories of black gay women which aren't being told. And our goal is that we see storytelling as an inclusive um, problem. It's not, storytelling is not something, if I tell you, well, I'm going to tell you about Black history, but I'm not talking about white people or Asian people when I'm talking about Black history. Then I'm only telling you a tiny part of that story. Um, for us, our mission has always been to tell a fully inclusive story. It is very challenging at times because often we will get companies who will reach out to us and they'll say, well, you know, this is our first time really doing anything associated with DEI. Uh, you know, we wanna make sure that we're doing an event for a specific ERG group. And our response always is, well, that's lovely. We're glad that you're doing it for this specific ERG group, but it's more important that 
every single member of your company is attending. Um, we want it to be an experience where everybody walks away and says, oh my gosh, I learned so much. I took away so much. I am so excited, whether I am black, whether I'm white, whether I'm Asian, whether I'm Hispanic, no matter what, I am so excited to go learn more about black history. That's our goal. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point because when you focus specifically on one specific ERG, then I, I think what ends up happening is you actually are doing the opposite of what you're trying to accomplish, right? You are creating an exclusive versus an inclusive environment. And and the whole DEI effort is about creating awareness and understanding and bringing people together to learn to create a level of curiosity, and, and this is my opinion, but to create a level of curiosity that then sparks conversations once the event or whatever that is, is over and gives people sort of the groundwork and the comfort level to be able to have those conversations. I mean, that that that's my take, right, on, on what some of the initiatives are that are trying to happen. I see it as there's room for both. So, for example, I am an Asian woman and um, I see a lot of value in events that are focused for Asian women where sure. we have a safe space in which we can discuss certain things and certain um, initiatives that matter to us. But at the same time, I also need events where everybody is included. So uh, I, I view this as a and approach. And that's always been our approach to storytelling in general is storytelling is about not or, but rather and. How are we providing more so that we can support everybody and be inclusive, but then also create that safe space as well. Yeah, I think that's a really, really great way of looking at it. And, and I, I agree with you 100%. There is definitely room for both. And both, to your point, equally as important um, in sort of this learning and growth process. You know, when you and I first met, uh, you mentioned a statistic that said that in the past five years, the rate of museum visitors has significantly decreased, while the whole concept of neighborhood tours have taken an opposite trajectory and are constantly increasing. Talk to me a little bit about that and sort of what interests you most about that change. Yeah, so, um, you know, I started off and we still run walking tours in Atlanta and uh, one of the very interesting things uh, is it's not just in walking tours and museums and all of this that there is a shift, but there is a way in which humans are processing information. So um, when you think about us as a human race, uh, 10,000 years ago, 7,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, even 100 years ago, the way that we conveyed information was through storytelling. We'd sit around a campfire and we would tell each other stories. Um, and I was actually thinking about this this morning because my father grew up in a very poor village in India. And then he immigrated to the United States before I was born. And my dad frequently says to me, that when he was growing up, 
their library only had about 25 books. So my father had read every single book in the library multiple times. Um, so if he wanted to gather more information in a, in a place in which there wasn't a lot of reading material, there was no uh, internet, uh, you know, maybe you would get some radio and you would get a little bit of TV, but not much. The way that you got that information was by sharing stories. Um, and we as humans shared stories. Even today, when you look at many countries around the world, the way in which communication is established is mothers telling stories to their children. Um, but in the Western world, as we have, and, and the Eastern world, honestly, as we have increased our dependency on technology, our storytelling has decreased. Um, it is a fascinating thing to me that we now live in what is considered the information age, but we're, we're forgetting. How do you tell one-on-one -on -one stories to other people? Uh, it's so easy for us to get information in mass consumption. And mass consumption might be things like going to a museum, going to, uh, you know, listening to the radio, uh, listening to a podcast like we're doing now, um, watching TV, watching a movie, reading a book. This is all ways of receiving information in which it's not one-to-one. -one. It's not direct. You're not directly communicating. On the other hand, um, the amount of times that we have the ability to go and talk to a stranger and really get that one-to-one -one information is so limited nowadays. Uh, and that's where I think there is a big turnaround that is happening, that for the last 50 to 60 years, uh, there has been a big push towards the development of mass consumption, mass consumption information. And now we're kind of turning back around and realizing hey, we miss talking to people. Uh, and I think that was especially heightened during the pandemic where um, we all were just sitting in our houses completely focused on mass consumption information. And so we realized, hey, I, I just want to talk to another human being. Um, and so that is why I believe uh, there's a big shift towards uh, people leaving museums and not going to museums anymore. And instead, they wanna be out in the streets talking to a guide who knows the area, uh, particularly happening with Gen Z and uh, the younger millennials as well. Yeah, there's so many different aspects to that that I find fascinating because we have become a society that is less patient. And when you think of the museum experience, you know, they would have a, a, a guide who would walk you through the museum and you'd do it in small groups and they would be scheduled every 15, half hour, whatever the case may be. And then I think we got to a point where, you know, people wanted to do that at their own pace, right? Well, it's impossible to just show up and then have a guide for every person, no matter what time they show up. So they moved towards self-guided tours and you walk through that. But now to to at what cost? Because now you to your point, you took away that interaction and that interaction is so critical towards the overall story that I, I think that is a piece that's missing. And so. Talk to us a little bit about unexpected virtual tours, because the one thing that I love about what you're doing is 
even though it is virtual, you do have that interaction and you have, I mean, I, I think it would be helpful to explain sort of how you go about the process of taking on a project or taking one of these tours in play. Because it was interesting to me the way that you do have correspondents that are in the field actually reporting back to the bigger group. Talk us through a little bit of that because I, I really love your approach. Yeah, so... Um with this mindset that our mission is to tell unexpected stories that matter, because um, that's really always our driving philosophy is how do we convey this um, and how do we use our skills in creating one on one communication with people in a virtual environment? So uh, we built a completely unique product and this was a ton of testing um, where basically for the last three years, we've been kind of continuously testing and refining our approach. And so our each unexpected virtual tour, it's based around a topic. So, for example, um, we're coming up on Women's History Month. So for Women's History Month, our topic is about she innovates. So female innovation. And we'll have what we call our two studio guides. So these are people like you and me, Brian, um, sitting in front of a computer. We're sharing information and we're telling a story chronologically uh, that chronological storytelling is so crucial because as humans, we are wired to understand things chronologically. Um, every single one of our experiences is built around the narrative arc structure, um, you know, which is basically that that base storytelling structure we all learned in elementary school, you know, which is that there is a middle and that there's the climax and that there's the resolution. Uh, so they're all built around that structure. Uh, and we integrate like trivia moments and immersive activities, but we also have live field guides who are out there in the world um, recording and, and sharing live streaming from different locations. So for example, for She Innovates, uh, we have a live streaming guide in Chicago, uh, which was one of the main locations for the women's suffrage movement uh, in the late 1800s to 1900s. Actually, Illinois was the first state um, to ratify the, the suffrage amendment. So um, that ability to really immerse our attendees in the virtual experience, uh, it's so much fun because we get to give them that one-on-one, -on -one. we're talking to them, but we're, because it's not like you're just sitting there watching a passive Netflix show, you have to interact with us. Like we're throwing trivia questions, we're asking you, people are asking our guides questions in the chat but we're able to show so much more than we would be able to show in a traditional walking tour um, because we can have, for example, our Juneteenth experience. We have a guide in Austin, Texas live streaming and a guide in Hampton, Virginia live streaming. And we're able to tell a cohesive story of emancipation associated with these two very different locations, which we could never do in the real world. We can do that in the virtual space. Yeah. And I think the other thing that really stood out for me was, uh, you know, people look at this and think virtual and they think it doesn't require as much time and effort and all that stuff. And I think there was one statistic that 
that was there that I was reading about from your team that one 60-minute event has over 300 hours of preparation that goes into pulling that off. So this isn't this isn't an easy way, let's say, for us to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. There's a tremendous amount of work that goes into it and detail to your point around how do you capture that immersive moment to make sure that you're balancing sort of the education with the factual live in field right conversation that supports it and really brings it to life. I just think the concept is just really amazing and you've done such a great job with it. Thank you. For me, I think it's also making sure that it's fun. That's so crucial in any experience is whether you were out with a live guide and you're in a neighborhood walking around or you're virtually doing something, we need it to be fun. Fun is what makes people get excited about participating in stories. And um, it's been very rewarding because um, I think as, as guides who are very passionate about sharing history, because we do see um, a movement right now in the United States to really curtail how history is being taught. Um, as guides who really care about history and as historians, because my team um, includes four, four published historians, um, for us, it's so rewarding to be able to share that history one-on-one -on -one with people um, and kind of go back to our roots as like the storytellers around the campfire. Um, so it's just a lot of fun to us. Yeah. And the other thing, too, you know, I mean, as a marketer, right, storytelling, I believe we're all storytellers in one way, shape or form. Um, to your point, this podcast is just a way to also tell stories. It's just another platform to be able to do that. And I know that it takes for us a tremendous amount of work to figure out what the stories are. Talk to us a little bit about your process for choosing stories. How, how do you determine what stories are important to be told? Is it you? Is it feedback from your audiences? Like, how do you balance and figure out which stories you're going to select and tell? Uh, that's a great question. And um, there's definitely a method behind it, but there's also gut instinct. Uh, and I think as a marketer, you know that, that sometimes you're just doing research and there is something that you, that just captures you and you say, oh my gosh, this is so fascinating. Um, and a, a really good example of this is I can give you our process in creating our pride event, um, because this was one of those experiences where, um, you know, LGBTQIA history is not very well taught, frankly, um, in the United States. A lot of people just don't know about the history behind it. Uh, we have a tendency to think about this history as something that's new. You know, we, we say, oh, well, you know what? Pride Month, that started with Stonewall. And so, um, so our approach is always the same. Um, we are skeptical about everything. We start by actually doing a super simple Wikipedia search. And we actually will annotate the Wikipedia. So we'll copy the Wikipedia, we'll annotate the Wikipedia um, entry, and we'll be super skeptical. And we'll say, well, wait a second, did Pride Month actually start with Stonewall? 
Um, and then we'll say, well, you know, what, like, it, you know, so like, for example, the Wikipedia entry might say, well, you know, the major locations, major centers of early LGBTQ areas were New York. And we'll say, well, wait a second. Hold on. Is that really true? Where are we getting the backup on that? So there's a heavy dose of skepticism that we associate all uh, publicly available information. And then what we start doing is we read dozens of books. We read um, actual original documentation, including, um, you know, journal entries, diary entries, all of this stuff from the past. And, and, you know, lovely it is that most things are have now been digitized. It's just kind of knowing where to find this research. Um, and then we find stories that stick with us. Um, for Pride Month, um, when we started doing the research, the first thing we were really skeptical about was uh, when did the LGBTQIA population first become accepted? Um, because that was a big question. A big question our team had was, well, because we saw a lot of statistics with people saying, well, you know what? Um, the population first started being accepted in like the mid 1980s. And we were like, whoa, 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 that can't be right. Um, so we were super skeptical about it. And we found a, a lesbian couple who had gotten married back in 1807. The entire town that they lived in, knew that they were married, accepted that they were gay and they loved each other. The two women had given each other wedding rings. Um, I mean, and they are buried together under the same headstone, just like a man and a wife. Um, and that research was really us kind of being very skeptical and saying, is the overwhelming narrative that is out there, is it actually the correct? narrative. Um, and that's really what I think is the fun part about being a storyteller is um, getting to do that questioning. Yeah, I think curiosity, it boils down to being being willing and open to asking questions and being curious. I think that's like, in order for good stories to be told, it's about that curiosity and being open to whatever the response associated with that looks like. Give me some framework, though. So from the time that you decide on a topic to the time that you can actually create it and move it into a virtual tour, what is the timing? How long does it take to be able to pull all that together? Because, I mean, there's yeah, a so tremendous amount of, of research, it sounds like, that's involved in this. Yeah, so um, the so we basically will say, well, we see there's a need for a new product. Um, and that normally comes back from our customers. I mean, just as you know, in the marketing area, um, we're always talking to our customers. And so um, our customers have for right now, what we're building is we're building an AAPI month event. And we've had multiple customers reach out to us and say, hey, we really want to offer an API month event. Do you have something? So um, it takes us about a solid month. Um, and that's me and two other historians on our team where we're just 
trashing <laughs> everything that is commonly accepted um, associated with history. And then we're really diving back into the roots. And then we're rebuilding the entire history of that particular uh, concept. For API Month, for example, we're really rebuilding this narrative um, that uh, Asian Americans started coming to the United States primarily in the 1970s uh, because actually there was an Indian American who arrived in Jamestown on that very first uh, Portuguese enslaver ship uh, back in the 1600s. And again, this is just kind of ripping apart history and then putting it back together. Um, so that takes us about a month to just do all of that. And then we have a designer who comes in and kind of starts creating all the visuals because it's also about creating that visual experiences. Um, our studio or our um, on-location guides are out scouting. Um, so they take several weeks to go and scout and find really good locations that we want to in incorporate into our experiences. Um, and so about a month before we're ready to launch, uh, we start running practices and our practices are um, very highly focused on um, critiques and uh, being willing to criticize the whole process uh, because um, and it's very important to us that we have the representative minority or the representative population that we're discussing um, Either they're leading our events, they're talking uh, about our events, they're communicating with us. They're kind of there throughout the whole step of the process uh, because we need them to say like, hey, you got this totally wrong or this is not the way that we as a representative population feel about this thing or we feel uncomfortable saying this. Um, and we also make sure that we have white guides as well, uh, because our white guides will give us very useful information like, I've never heard of this before. <laughs> um, and, you know, like the model minority myth among Asians is a very well-known term. But then when we took it back to some of our guides, they were like, what is this? Explain this. This is where we need better explanations. Um, and then um, once all of that has been kind of pulled together, we hand it to our um, teams who actually run the experiences. Um, and each experience has uh, between three to four guides and then they do practices and then we're live, which is why I said it's, a, it's about 300 hours to build a one hour event. That's amazing, amazing. So I'm going to switch gears for a second. Um, and, you know, you'd mentioned that it is Women's History Month and you obviously are an incredibly successful female run company. I'd love to hear from your perspective, you know, uh, what are some of the challenges that you had to overcome as you were creating the company and sort of just in the process um, of being as successful as you are today? Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges was I started this company when my daughter was um, a year and a half old. And so um, in addition to, you know, being an entrepreneur, I'm also a mom. I have two girls and, uh, you know, I've read all the books, lean in every book that's out there. 
Um, it's hard. There's a lot of mom guilt. And I am extremely fortunate in that I have a spouse who is also an entrepreneur um, and he is exceedingly supportive of the work that I do. And he like this afternoon, I was like, I've got all this stuff going on. Can you go pick up the kids? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. Um, But to me, one of the biggest challenges has been that I hold myself to the standard of my mother and my grandmother. And um, my grandmother was a stay-at-home mom um, her entire life. My mother, she uh, worked, but she was a teacher. So she had, um, you know, regular hours. She would come home at like three o'clock. And when I talk to a lot of female entrepreneurs, very, very frequently, the big thing I hear about is mom guilt. We all feel like, are we doing enough? Are we doing the right things for our kids? Uh, And it's so hard because uh, there are expectations associated with parenting, especially as a mother. And we always want to do the best thing for our children. I have two daughters as well. So I want to model um, what success can look like for them. Uh, But at the same time, you know, am I going to be there at every single class event that they have? Am I going to be able to be a room parent? No, never. I'm never going to be a room parent. Um, And that's, tough in a lot of ways because um, as an entrepreneur and especially as a female or a male entrepreneur, honestly, anybody who has children, um, you have to be willing to give up. You have to be able to say, this is what I can do. This is the best I can do. And beyond that, I can't do anything further. But you've been able to accomplish and achieve your dreams, which is remarkable. And I guess, you know, for other young women who are listening, who have those dreams, what what advice do you give them? Oh, that advice is so simple, Um, which is the advice I live my whole life with, which is ask for help. Um, Ask for help. Start when you're 18 years old and you uh, you are young and you're in college and you have a crazy idea, ask for help. Find an entrepreneur in your community and say, hey, can I just walk around and follow you? Uh, Because I just want to see what you do. Um, It is amazing to me how few people ask me for help. It it truly astonishes me um, because I do it all the time. I will, I will literally tell somebody, you know, I really admire you. Would you be okay if I just kind of sat in the corner and just listened to you? And you don't know how to talk to me. I just want to learn from you. I want to see what you're doing. Um, and very often those relationships evolve into something so huge and so wonderful. Um, so to me, that is the single best piece of advice I actually received that advice when I was 19 years old from a female entrepreneur. She was a very successful entrepreneur. And I asked her the same question. I said to her, um, you know, what advice do you have for me? And she said, ask for help. And 
the best advice I can give any female entrepreneur or any entrepreneur, honestly. That's amazing. Well, Akilah, thank you so much for being here. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Brian. So appreciate it. And um, can't wait to have you come and take one of our unexpected virtual tours uh, sometime soon. Thanks. And and for those of you listening, I would highly recommend checking out Unexpected Virtual Tours. It is a very, very unique way to learn and to help your teams learn. Before we sign off, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can help us grow by visiting our feed on Apple Podcasts to rate, review, and subscribe. Or if you're listening on Spotify, be sure to hit follow. That's it for us. I'm Brian Raleigh, and that was another episode of The Big Rethink. A quick note from our sponsor, Intel. Intel vPro continues to raise the bar with enterprise-grade performance, security, manageability, and reliability features for enterprise and managed business of all sizes. It's simple. Intel vPro is built for all businesses.